Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, choir and musicians. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue our series uh, through Galatians. And I hate to tell you this, but as I, as I write sermons, um, uh, the series just keeps getting longer and longer. <laughs> Um, we will, we will, um, we will get finished one day, but, um, when the Lord gives us all he has for us in it, then we can move on. So we're going to be uh, in Galatians chapter five this morning, picking up where we left off from a few weeks ago now, Galatians chapter five. And, um, let me pray for us one more time as we uh, begin this morning. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to gather with your people and worship you. Lord, we have sung your praise. And Lord, now we worship you through the hearing of your word. Pray, Lord, you'd guard me from error. Pray you'd put words in my heart and in my mouth that might be precisely what somebody in this room needs to hear this morning. Pray that your spirit would be present to attend your word with power, to convict of sin, to bring repentance that leads to life, to strengthen us in our weaknesses, to comfort us in our sorrow, to change us, Lord, into the divine image. We just pray that you would have your way with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So... We're now ending, concluding, in many ways, uh, Paul's, uh, Paul's whole thrust, his whole argument of this letter. Uh, the Galatians were tempted by the false teaching of the Judaizers to go back to the Jewish law as the means of their right standing before God. And Paul says that we cannot go back to the law because the law was temporary, it was given for a season, and the law cannot save. All it can do is condemn. Because we cannot uphold the righteous standard of the law. The law is good. It shows us God's holiness. Unfortunately, it also shows how far we fall short of the God's holiness. And therefore, it shows us our need for a Savior. So God, in his mercy through Christ, has outpoured his Holy Spirit so that the law is not something outside us that condemns us, but by the Spirit, God's law is written on our hearts so that we are changed from the inside out. That we are adopted into God's family and now serve God not as slaves, but as sons, children of the Most High. Christ has come to bring forgiveness of sin, and where there is forgiveness of sin, the Bible says there is freedom. Freedom from the law, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So if you have a Bible, and you're able and willing, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. From Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only 
Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the, de- the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The Word of God. You may be seated. There are two things that I want to talk about uh, this morning concerning the flesh and spirit at war. The flesh and spirit are at war. And so two things I want to see. Number one, use your freedom for love and not the flesh. And number two, battle the flesh by the spirit. So number one, use your freedom for love, not for the flesh. And number two, battle the flesh by the spirit. First, number one, use your freedom for love and not for the flesh. Verse 13, Paul says, You were called to freedom, brothers. We are, Christ called us. We are called by God out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are called by God from our sin. We are called by God, Paul says, to freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from the law. Freedom from trying to keep the law as the basis of earning our right standing before God. And Paul says to be free from the law is the same thing as being free from the power of sin. The power that sin has over our lives is its power to condemn us. The sin's power to condemn, to condemn us actually comes from the law because the law Since it is God's standard of righteousness, sin uses the law, condemning us because because of sin we fall short of God's standard of righteousness. And so sin uses the law to exert its power of condemnation over our lives. But Paul says, in Christ, since Christ kept the law on our behalf, since he died on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, Bearing the curse of the law on our behalf, we are then free from the law and its demands, therefore free from the power of sin over our lives. And since we are free from the power of sin, we are free from the consequences of sin. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall surely die. But Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We're called to freedom, brothers, Paul says, but do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. It's not clear that the Galatians were engaging in licentious activity, In fact, if anything, they were being tempted by the Judaizers to become Jewish legalists. Nevertheless, Paul wants to make clear that freedom in Christ does not not lead to freedom to live however you want. The, the, 
the freedom that God gives us in Jesus Christ is not freedom to sin. It's, so, it's something totally different. It's different altogether. If Christ freed us from sin, then think about it. What is sin? Sin is unbelief. It is selfishness. It is putting yourself in the center of the universe and displacing God from his right place as the center of everything. It is, live, it is living your life as if God doesn't exist. It is you consciously or unconsciously saying, I am the Lord of my life, rather than acknowledging reality, that is Jesus Christ is Lord. It's self-centeredness. So if Christ has set us free from sin, then what has he done? He has set us free from self-centeredness. He has set us free from selfishness. He has set us free from making ourselves the center. That means Christian freedom, by definition, then, is not it's not freedom to continue to keep yourself first, because that's what sin is. Freedom from sin means freedom for the first time in your life to put God first and to put others first. That's what Christian freedom is. Think about it. Any, anybody can put themselves first. That's not freedom. That's not, anybody can do that. That means you're a slave to sin. Freedom, then, is freedom from your natural inclination to put yourself first and freedom to do what you couldn't before. Deny yourself and love God and others. That's what freedom in Christ means. And we know this because that's how Jesus lived. Jesus was the only perfect human being that ever lives. Therefore, we can look at Jesus' life and know what it means to be truly human. And how did Jesus live? He willingly laid down his rights and privileges as God and gave himself for people who didn't deserve it. And that's why God has given you freedom. So that you can live like him. So attempts to use freedom... In Christ, as a license to sin, gets the whole thing backwards. We are set free from sin so that we can be who we were made to be. Focused on God. Focused on others. Freed from our infatuation with ourselves. To fully and finally love like we were made to love. And know the joy that comes with it. From ancient of days to the very beginning of the church, there has always been the temptation to use Christian freedom, as Paul says, as an opportunity for the flesh. By emphasizing freedom in some way or another, just about every sin under the sun has been justified by so-called Christians. But let me tell you something. We cannot presume upon the grace of God. If you try to presume upon the grace of God and say, oh, well, God will forgive me. Oh, God will understand. Oh, God's grace will cover this sin. If you try to presume upon God's grace, that shows that you haven't received God's grace. Because it hasn't changed you. And believe it or not, Christian freedom even goes deeper than this. Even, Paul says, in multiple places, that even as Christians, if we have legitimate freedoms 
as Christians that we can exercise, he says, even legitimate freedoms that we have as Christians, if they result in unloving action towards others, we should deny them. For example, Paul in Romans and in Corinthians, a big controversial thing in their day was whether or not Christians should eat food offered to idols. Remember, there, there are pagan temples all over the Roman Empire. And some Christians, literally, before they became Christians, they would go to these temples and offer animal sacrifices. And, they would, and, then, and then sometimes they would, they would eat, and then sometimes that meat was sold in the market. And so this meat that was offered in sacrifice to false gods was, was offered in the marketplace. And so there was a controversy over whether it's allowable for Christians to eat that meat since it was offered in sacrifice to false god. Well, Paul's reasoning is this. His reasoning is that, is that ultimately it's fine to eat the meat because false gods aren't real. They don't exist. They're worshiping things that do not exist. And so in reality, eating the meat is fine, but there are those who, because of their life before Christ, who, as they worship and offered animal sacrifices to those false gods, that, that was true idolatry. And for them, if they ate that meat again, they, it, would, it would tear their heart apart because they would feel like they're worshiping false god. It would feel like they're participating in their old practices. In other words, their conscience bound them so that even though there was a legitimate freedom to eat that meat, they just couldn't do it. It wounded their conscience too much. And if they saw other Christians eating that meat, it just it, it didn't sit well with them. It hurt them. It grieved them. It grieved their conscience. Well, what does Paul say? Paul says, do not by what you eat destroy the work of God. Romans chapter 14. In other words, Paul is saying, he says, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. In other words, what Paul is saying is that even if we have legitimate Christian freedoms, if exercising that freedom means an act that is not loving towards a brother, then I should deny my freedom. In other words, what does, what does this mean? It means we live in a world that all this world tells you to do is demand your rights, demand your rights, demand your rights. And Jesus says, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. You may be free to do something, but it hurts your brother. I'm not going to do it. It doesn't matter if I have the right or not. You see, it changes the way you look at the world. We're always so keen to demand our rights, demand our rights. Thank God Jesus Christ didn't demand his rights, but that he laid them down for others. So Christian freedom is something totally different that the world, frankly, just can't understand. It is denying yourself for the good of others, for the love of others. Why? Because it's no longer about you. 
Jesus Christ has come into your life and it changes everything. The way you look at the world, the way you think, the way you act, the way you speak. Life is about Christ and about loving others. No longer about me. So Paul says, verse 13 again, Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Through love serve one another. That's what Christian freedom is for. Jesus Christ, the only person who ever lived who actually had the divine right and authority to demand his rights. If anybody gets to say, gets to keep his rights and demand his rights, it's God. But the Bible says that though he was, that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he, he took on the form of a servant and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is Jesus Christ, who is the most authoritative and has the most rights of anybody in existence. He took on flesh, denied his rights. He washed the feet of his disciples and he got up on a bloody cross. That's what your freedom is for. That's what it's for. To live like Jesus. Then in verse 14, Paul says this, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he says, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you've been paying attention, you'd notice that this is a little strange for Paul to argue this way because he's been arguing uh, this whole book that Christians aren't bound by the law. And then he says, well, now that you're a Christian, you should try to keep the law. That is summed up in this word. You should love your neighbor as yourself. Well, (laughs) What is it? What should we do? Well, if you haven't picked up on it yet, the relationship between the Old Testament law and Christians uh, in the New Covenant is a matter of great debate. But I, I have been arguing and argue that Christians are not bound in any way to the Jewish law as such. Rather, as Christians, we are bound to God's standard of righteousness which in many ways was, reflect, was reflected in the law, but we are not bound to the law as such. That is, we are bound to the essence of the law, the heart of the law, the law insofar as it reflects the, God's innate moral standard and his innate moral righteousness, but we're not bound to the Jewish law as such because it was given for a specific time in a specific place and a specific people. And so what Jesus said... He said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. In these is all the law and commandments. So Paul Paul is just basically re-saying what Jesus already said. That the heart and the essence of the law is to love God and to love neighbor. And so when the Spirit comes into your life, He changes you, He teaches you to To love God and to love neighbor in a way that is consistent 
with God's moral standard and with God's righteousness. And so you have to understand, see, when you, as soon as you say that we're not bound by the law, lots of people will say, well, that means I can live however I want. And as soon as you say that Christians are bound not by the law, but by the love of the Spirit, a lot of people misconstrue that to mean, well, if we're bound, if the only law that we have to keep is to love one another, they construe that to mean, they construe that love therefore means, well, just blindly accept any behavior anybody wants to do because to not accept them would be unloving. But that is precisely not what he's talking about. The love, of, you don't get to define what God means by what he says when he says, love your neighbor. God, through the scripture, gives you the contour, shows you the shape of his holiness, and that is what your love is supposed to look like. Christian love is shaped and formed by God's holiness as empowered in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Keyword, holy. So if your love is not consistent with holiness, it's not love. And so we can't, so we can't just say, well, we're not bound by the law, so, but then we just love people, so then we can't accept any behavior. That's not at all what he's saying. We're bound by the love of God, which is shaped and, 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 and uh, shown, uh, uh, it shows and expresses God's moral righteousness. And so, hear me now, the command to love, empowered by the Spirit, goes further and deeper than the law ever could. In other words, the fact that we are bound by the law of love by the Spirit is actually deeper than, than if we tried to keep the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law said, do not commit adultery. Jesus said, if you lust after another in your heart, you have committed adultery. In other words, in other words, the law, the, the law of love goes deeper than the law itself ever could because it doesn't just look at your external behavior, but it looks at right at your heart and says, does your heart express love for God and love for neighbor? It's not enough that did you just, did you do or not do this? It is was your heart is your heart for that person the love of god by the spirit not only keeps us from taking advantage of others which is what the law did but it moves us beyond that to acts of self-denial and service to help and love and serve those to whom otherwise we still we have no other obligation it takes you further it takes you deeper than the law ever could the law of love by the Spirit is also more comprehensive than the law could ever be. No law could ever tell you exactly what you're supposed to do at every situation, at every time, and at every place. But the law of love by the Spirit, however, the Spirit in, writes God's law on our hearts. And therefore, what it does is it, the Spirit tunes our heart to God's heart. The Spirit comes into your life and it resets your moral compass to the true north of God's holiness. So that 
by the Spirit and by a conscience, conscience shaped by God's Word. You don't need a law for every situation because by, by uh, the Spirit living in you and, your, and your, your, the, your mind shaped by God's Word, you, if you think critically and pray to God, He will show you what to do that will honor and please Him in every circumstance and situation. So the law of the spirit, the law of love by the spirit goes way deeper than the law ever could. So Christian freedom then is freedom to love. Freedom to love our neighbor as ourself. Freedom not just to not wrong our neighbor, but freedom to put ourselves in our neighbor's shoes and say, if I was them, here's what I would want done for me. In verse 15, Paul says, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. You see, the opposite of love is biting, devouring, consuming. When do we bite and devour and consume one another? Well, we bite and devour and consume one another when... We feel like we're not getting something that we deserve. And so and so was supposed to give it to me. And because they didn't do it the way I wanted, when I wanted it, I'm going to bite and devour and consume them. Paul says, Watch out. If you don't walk by love, this is what you're going to do. We have been set free from that kind of way of life. Free to not demand our rights, but to deny our rights. Love, Peter says, covers a multitude of sins. So watch out, Paul says. Use your freedom in love, not in the flesh. Number one, use your freedom in love, not in the flesh. Number two, battle the flesh by the Spirit. Battle the flesh by the Spirit. Verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So, Paul says, I say to you, if you walk by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. How do we love one another? How do we live the life Christ has called us to live? We do it by walking in the Spirit. By walking in the Spirit. And note here the way it's phrased. Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The best way to to understand what he's saying is he's giving a statement of fact. In other words, he's giving a promise. If you are a Christian, there there is a spiritual impulse that dwells inside of you that wants to honor God. There is a spiritual impulse inside of you that wants to know God. That wants to love neighbor. 
that wants to see Christ exalted in the world. If the spirit of God inside of you, then that is that is inside those that impulse, that sense is inside of you. And if that is true, then this promise, (laughs) this promise is going to warm your heart because Paul is saying, here's the way that you can fulfill that impulse inside of you to honor God and to not gratify the desires of your flesh. How do you do it? You walk by the spirit. You walk by the Spirit. Walking indicates a daily, continual, moment-by-moment submission to the Spirit of God. And when we walk by the Spirit, we are free from our sinful desires, free from the temptations, free from the inclinations that stir your heart and your mind, free from the, the lusts of the flesh that are trying to kill your soul, kill your integrity, kill your marriage. Kill your family relationships. Kill your relationships with other people. Kill your prayer life. Kill your, de- kill your devotional life. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so, as I've said before, when, you, when the Spirit comes into your life, that does not mean, when you become a Christian, it does not mean that the battle in your heart against sin is over. Some people, again, unfortunately, some people have fallen into that trap and they wonder why they still struggle. But listen, there was no battle in your heart before the Spirit came in. There was no battle because you just sinned whenever you wanted to and it didn't bother you. It is is precisely when the Spirit comes into your life, not that the battle is over, but the battle has just begun. Because now for the first time in your life, you are actually trying to combat your sin. You're actually beginning the war. You're actually finally declaring the war against your sin, which before just had full reign over your life. But now the Spirit has come to wage war against the desires of the flesh. And Paul says, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You either love one and hate the other or, or hate, hate the other and love, the one, and love one. What he's, say, what he's saying is it's true that if sin reigns in your life, Christ isn't. It's also true that if Christ is reigning in your life, sin isn't. So if you walk by the Spirit, you will not, will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If we moment by moment yield to the Spirit's leadership in our life, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For Paul says, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The desires of the flesh are opposed to the desires of the Spirit, Paul says. They are diametrically opposed. That's how he puts it. The desires of the flesh are against the desires of the spirit. If you have both inside of you, then they're at war. I want you to think about this. I want you to compare this to the prevailing view of the world. Look, the Bible is so comprehensive. It's so clear. It, it helps you understand the way things are so that you can understand yourself. Because our, one of our biggest problems is that we do not even understand ourselves. The world says that if you have desires that feel natural to you, 
then those desires are who you are. But the Bible says something totally different. The Bible says that if you have desires that feel natural in the flesh, those desires are not who you are. In fact, those desires are less than who you are. The Bible says that since the fall, since Adam and Eve rebelled against God, sin entered the world, humanity received a sin nature, and because we are children of Adam, we inherit a sin nature, just like our father Adam. In Psalm 51, verse 5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We have a sin nature that dwells in us. So if, if sinful desires feel natural to you, of course they feel natural because you have a sin nature. So your sinful nature will make sinful desires feel natural. But the sin nature is not who we were meant to be, but less than we were meant to be. And God, by the Spirit, is putting our old self to death, our old nature to death with its sinful desires, so that your true nature, your real nature, true humanity, true life may live in you. That's why the Bible speaks of conversion as an act of new creation. Behold, behold, the, uh, the old is gone, the new has come. God, in Christ, by the Spirit, is putting your sin nature to death and putting a new nature inside of you. So we make war against the desires of the flesh and walk in the Spirit. This is why I reject the idea of the so-called fleshly Christian. Now, some people... Some prominent teachers I can think of have taught that in the past, and I'll, just, I'll tell you my view, and you just see what you think. I'm not saying that a Christian never sins. Of course, we all, James says we all stumble in many ways. But a Christian, by definition, is a spiritual, capital S person. The Bible talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The things of the Spirit are spiritually discerned. Christians are spiritual people, capital S, because we have the Holy Spirit, capital S, living inside of us. So, what that means is that because Christ is in us, there must be a change of life. The author of Hebrews says that there is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's what it says. If we, as a general characterization of our life are not bearing the fruit of the Spirit and the life of love, we cannot call that person a fleshly Christian. We must call them, I'm sorry, lost. They're lost. If they're not, if there is no evidence of spiritual grace in their life, of change of heart by the Spirit, we cannot presume they have the Spirit. And if they don't have the Spirit, they are not a child of God. The Bible is so clear on this. Nevertheless, nevertheless, we must understand that there is a war. And I think we know. I think we intuitively know. The, the Bible says the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. That is, if the Spirit 
People all the time struggle with assurance. I get that. And I don't want to make anyone doubt their salvation. But if we're, not, if we're living in sin, the Bible wants you to doubt your salvation. Because it tells you to test yourself. But I think intuitively, most of us know if there's that impulse in our heart and in our life that causes us to want to obey God, that leaps within our heart when Jesus Christ is exalted, that, that impulse that comes by the Spirit when we know we're doing something we ought not do. And so there is a war to be waged in the heart of the Christian. New life has began, has began in us, but it is not complete in us. One way the Bible speaks of the Christian life is that we live in the life between the ages. The Bible speaks of the old age and the age to come. We live in between the ages. New life in Christ by the Spirit is already at work in you. But when Christ comes and the dead in Christ are raised and we are given spiritual bodies that we can hardly fathom, 1 Corinthians 15 then sin will be eradicated from you. You will be fully, wholly spiritual, capital S. No sin remains. And what God began, he will complete. But until then, we live in between the ages where new life is already at work in us by the Spirit but is not yet complete. So we walk by the Spirit, remembering the promise that if we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Again, verse 17. He says, The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You see what Paul's saying? He assumes that if the Spirit is in you, you don't want to sin. You see it? To keep you from doing the things you don't want to do. He's assuming that the Christian doesn't want to sin, but the desires of the flesh are waging war. There's an, there's an old uh, Indian parable that illustrates the point, even though it's not theologically accurate. And the point uh, was that uh, an old wise uh, Native American grandfather told us, uh, son or some or grandson that there are two wolves that live inside everyone a bad wolf and a good wolf and he says and this grandson says well, which wolf wins and he says the one you feed the most we still battle in this world but the bible says that if the spirit is living in us we are not we are not yet fully changed but we are truly changed. We are not who we one day will be, but we are not who we once were. And the battle in the heart of a Christian, it is a real battle. We must put sin to death, but it's a real battle, but it's not a fair one. Because if the Spirit is in you, you can't lose Romans 8.13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. John, 1 John 4.4, 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. 
He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. If the Spirit is in you, you don't have to sin. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. It's a real battle we must fight, but it's not a fair one. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If Christ is in you, the Spirit is guaranteed victory over the flesh. You don't have to be enslaved to your sin anymore. So how do we, how do, we do this? We must, to walk by the Spirit, what does that mean? Well, it means... To daily, continually, moment by moment, live in view of who you are. Live in view of who Christ is. Claim the promises of God. Be in the people of God. It means walking with a spiritual mindset, a spiritual worldview. It, is mean, it means taking thoughts in your, your, that are in your head that come up in there because of your sin and saying, I refuse to think about that. I refuse to believe that. I refuse to think that. And how do we cultivate that kind of mind? The, the ancient, uh, uh, the Puritans called it the means of grace. It's how you feed your soul. If we're not feeding our soul, why are we so surprised that we're withering on the inside and succumbing to sin? The means of grace, daily time in the word. Not to be a good Christian, but to say, God, I need you. Show me yourself. Daily time in prayer where you're acknowledging your utter helplessness and your utter dependency on God. And where you're praising God knowing that through him and by the power of the Spirit, you will walk in victory. It is by, it is by immersing yourself in the people of God and being an active vibrant, self-giving member of a local body of Christ so that you are living life among one another, that people are knowing you well enough that they can speak truth into your life, where you're getting fed not just from your own study of the Word, but from the preaching of the Word, from everyday conversations that we have with one another where we talk about what the Lord is doing with our lives, where we go to other people and say, can you pray for me about this? And they stop right there and pray for you about it. That's what, this is where we draw the strength for our spiritual lives. This is how we walk by the Spirit. Jesus Christ has come and he's changed everything because he has given us a helper. He has poured out his Spirit on the world. So number one, use your freedom for love, not for the flesh. Number two, battle the flesh by the Spirit. I'm going to read you... I'm going to read you this uh, brief snippet um, from the experience of Rosaria Butterfield 
as I close. Rosaria Butterfield was a tenured English professor at, at Syracuse, I think. She was a practicing lesbian. And then she met Jesus Christ. This is what she says. 20 years ago, I lived as a lesbian. I delighted in my lover, our home on one of the Finger Lakes, our golden retrievers, and our careers. When Christ claimed me for his own, I did not stop feeling like a lesbian. I did not fall out of love with women. I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. Conversion to Christ did not initially change my sexual attraction for women. What conversion did change immediately was my heart and mind. My mind was on fire for the Bible, and I could not read enough of it or get enough of it. The gospel gave me a light that was ruinous. It ruined me for the life I had loved. The Lord's light illumined my sin through the law and illumined my hope through Jesus and the gospel. The gospel destroyed me before the Lord built me back up. In saying yes to Jesus and no to the desires of my flesh, I learned that the only way to peace with my God was through the cross, the one that Jesus died on and the one I was called with the help of Jesus to carry. In this crucible, I wondered how this could be so. How could that which I loved be sin? How could I hate my sin without hating myself? How could I both hate my sin and feel drawn into it simultaneously? I learned that sin does not lose its character as sin because I loved it. I learned that my homosexuality was a logical consequence of the fall of man, the thumbprint of original sin on some of us. It is true that some of us are born this way. It is also true that we are all born in sin in one way or another. We can hate our sin without hating ourselves because we who have committed our lives to Christ stand in his righteousness and not our own. Our real identity, our real identity is not in the sin we battle, but in the Savior we embrace. So I extend an invitation this morning. Jesus Christ can, by the power of his Holy Spirit, enter into your life, renew you from the inside out, battle though it may be, and make and remake you to be into true humanity who you were meant to be. And give you peace with God, peace with yourself, and the hope of everlasting life. Jesus Christ died paying the penalty for our sin on the cross. He rose from the dead, conquering the penalty for sin. He's seated at the right hand right now of God the Father Almighty. He will soon come to judge the living and the dead. And if you embrace him by faith as the one who lived and died for you. And renounce all worldly sin and, and, and your fleshly desires and embrace Christ. He will change you. And you can receive that today. If you feel the draw 
of the Holy Spirit, I beg you, come today. Call on the Lord. Call on him right now. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We're going to sing a song of invitation. If you want to talk to me now, later, 